Inside the Adventure Season 1, Episode Number 11 with Chris Shiver. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. How's it going, everyone? This is your host, Marshall Mosier, and I'm so thrilled to have you join us today for another episode of Inside the Adventure. Today, I'm sitting here at the Outdoor Retailer Conference in Salt Lake City with Chris Shiver, the owner and CEO of ColoradoAdventure.com. How's it going today, Chris? Thanks so much for joining us. Marshall, I appreciate it. Uh, it's an exciting time here at the Outdoor Retail Trade Show, and uh, glad to have the time to talk to you today. Absolutely. I know it's a busy event, but thanks so much for uh, for jumping in with us. I'm really excited to show a lot of your stories to, to our audience. I appreciate the opportunity to, to help uh, hopefully get some more folks out in the wilderness and enjoy the, the beauty of Mother Nature. Absolutely. So to tell everyone out there a little bit more about our guest today, Chris is a natural-born entrepreneur and investor who's visited over 36 countries, living in four and working in six. Chris is also the founder and president of a NASA-based composite thermal materials and products company whose proprietary material helps NASA to patch the heat shield in orbit. Chris is also an avid scuba diver who's spent 30 years in the sport and five years as the director of sales and marketing for six high-end diving resorts in Fiji, Belize, and the Philippines, and much, much more with more incredible stories that I could ever say in this intro right now. So that's incredible. We can't wait to hear more about that, Chris. It's been a, pardon the pun, but it's been an adventure of a life, and uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It's uh, it's been, uh, I'm very fortunate my father's job took us all over the world growing up as a child, so I got the bug early in life, and here we are. Absolutely. So what was uh, your early childhood like? What was it like uh, traveling around with your father all around the world, and how do you think that inspired the lifestyle that you're living today? We got to see some of the most unique places in the world. Uh, we were transferred overseas when I was four. We ended up in Australia when I was six for six years, and we would do train rides across Australia or time through Southeast Asia with my father's job that as he was doing projects around the world. Um, one of the most definitive ones was our time in Aust- in uh, New Zealand and Tasmania and the Great Barrier Reef as a child. That, I think, gave me the formative DNA for the environment and Mother Nature and the beauty of, of what's out there. Um, we got to go through uh, Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin in 1970-72. We went into Moscow and Beijing behind the Iron Curtain. So that kind of formed my DNA as a, as a diehard entrepreneur and realizing the great freedoms we have in this country. And so uh, I was just very blessed growing up. And then once I turned 16, I just took off and kept going myself. I don't sit still very well. So what can you do? Where did you head to when you were 16? Uh, I bought a one-way plane ticket to Europe and tried to climb the highest mountain in Europe. Wow. So tell, <laughs> us, tell us about that story. Um, when I was eight, we went to New Zealand and we experienced uh, Mount Cook and the Tasman Glacier, and in the uh, ranger station was all the pictures of Sir Edmund Hillary where he trained for his 1953 first ascent of Mount Everest, and that was the moment I decided to become a great mountaineer. So as soon as I was legal enough to drive, uh, I took off. I joined the Boy Scouts when we moved to the States, started learning the basics of climbing, and went to a climbing school over in, in Mont Blanc 
and I had a, just a wonderful experience. The irony was uh, three people died, not on our expedition, but we had to go pick up their bodies. So when I was 16 years old, I'm putting frozen bodies into a body bag. And my lesson was not walk away from climbing. My lesson was become a great climber so you don't die right. and know when to walk away. So, uh, you know, do you think the, learning that lesson early on has really helped throughout the rest of your life? Oh, absolutely. Cause I've walked away from several summit attempts going, it's not worth dying. This is mm-hmm. supposed to be fun. And you know, I've lost people and there's a lot of bodies on those mountains because the ego tends to win the, the personality battles when you're up there and you know, the mountain will always be there and they're not worth dying over. Right. So. What do you think goes wrong for the, for those people? Um, I think there's a, an intrinsic battle between common sense and ego. And unfortunately, the ego tends to win a lot of times, especially in the American male. Um, and the inability or refusal for whatever reason to turn around and walk away because you've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, your reputation stake. I got to summit this mountain. Well, no, you got to walk away alive and have fun and, <laughs> and uh, learn from the experiences. So I got no, I had no problem. And I actually walked away from Mount Everest a little early because of just that same thing. I knew that if I went back up the fourth time, I was probably going to get into some deep doo-doo and, didn't want that. Like, no, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Much better to walk away than to be st- yeah. stuck on the summit. <laughs> yeah. What was it like being a part of such an incredible team on that Everest expedition? The 2001 Mallory and Irvine uh, research expedition was just, it's hard to explain because it was something I wanted for 30 years since that when I was eight on that experience on Mount Cook. And, and I did everything I could to my choice of high school, my choice of colleges, where I lived. Everything I did was always somehow related, focused on getting me to Everest someday. And I kept getting close. I earned my stripes, uh, paid my dues, did all the climbing, did everything right. Um, and it was a handpicked team that was there to find Sandy Irvine's body from 1924. Two years earlier in 1999, they found George Mallory's body, and it was front cover of National Geographic. And it was just an incredible experience. And I was supposed to be on that team, but I had a software company at the time that was getting funded, couldn't make it. They find George. So I was like, dang. So I had two years notice that they were going back to look for Sandy who had the camera and it was a handpicked team because everybody and their grandmother, every climber on the planet wanted to be a part of the team to, that would solve the great mystery of all of mountaineering. So it was incredibly and for humbling. anyone who doesn't know what that is. Just what's a quick overview of what that mystery was. Um, George Mallory and Sandy Irvine in 1924 were last seen 800 feet from the summit of Mount Everest and they disappeared. And over the ensuing decades, clues kept coming out of the ice and out of, out of the mountain and that was 29 years before Sir Edmund Hillary summited. So it was truly next to Shackleton's South Pole expedition. I think it, Irvine and Mallory were arguably the greatest human endeavor of all time, but they died for God and country. And uh, uh, we had 11 different ever summiters on the team. It was truly the best team ever put on the mountain. But more than that, it was the leadership and the character and the personality of the team uh, led by Eric Simonson, there was no egos, there was no personality classes. We were there to do a job. We had our roles. It was a beautiful experience of management and leadership and the human side of an expedition. Because you see a lot of ego and greed and uh, media junkies on the mountain and people trying to find firsts. And Everest has just become a three-ring circus. And I was wanting to experience a real true old-school type expedition where you, you pass the ball, you communicate, you work together, you play your role, you do your job. And it was just a beautiful experience. I had eight weeks on the mountain and I'd be at base camp a few times and I'd be sitting in the room with all the guys that were my heroes. And um, It still seems surreal sometimes uh, of what it was like. And they were so cool as well. 
Uh, and the, the expedition over time kind of changed its energy from trying to find Sandy and solve the mystery to finding Sandy and burying him and putting his spirit to rest. And it was a noticeable change on the expedition that it, we became more about putting his spirit to rest because two years earlier they had buried George. Symbolically, they put his spirit to rest. He had been laying out there for almost 80 years. At this point, we felt Sandy had been alone for two years up there, his spirit. And people would go to superhuman efforts to do that rather than, and maybe we don't want to solve the mystery. Maybe it's best that it, re, it, it, it retains its mystery in and of itself of did they or did they not. And uh, But we found a lot of evidence and information. Um, it's still inconclusive of did they summit that day or not, but it is most probably highly unlikely that they did for a lot of reasons. But we all, any climber growing up in the last 50, 60 years will always believe that they did. You know, and we, uh, so we kind of, that's why we kind of didn't want to solve the <laughs> mystery and burst the bubble. Exactly. So. Well, it's incredible to hear a story of such an amazing Everest expedition where everyone's truly working together for a goal that's larger than anyone's individual motivations. You know, it's not about getting me to the top. It's about, uh, you know, accomplishing this shared goal. Um, that's you know bigger than everyone that's part of the team. That's incredible to hear about. One of the side stories in this is our search and summit team did some amazing heroics up above 27,000 feet. They were pushing for the summit after we had finished the search, and they found three people that were dying out of five above the second step at about 28,000 feet. And they did the highest and the third highest rescue in the history of mountaineering in the same day and saved three out of five lives. Two ended up dying, but all five would have died if our guys hadn't been there. And kind of the sad thing was no one on earth gave a hoot of what these guys did. They passed up their summit attempt, and they saved lives of strangers, And they because they all worked for uh, Rainier Mountaineering on Mount Rainier, so they were some of the best rescue guides in the world. And they came down, and they were very sad because there was no press, no media, because unfortunately or fortunately no Americans died, so no press. That's again. The, is it only? Is there usually only press if it's an American, or it's a real big disaster? Really? You know, blood wow. leads the line. You know the headlines. But what came full circle is in their heart and souls. They know in the universe, in the karmic universe of Mount Everest, of the spirit of the mother center of the universe for Nepalese and Tibetan religions. They did really good, but no one knew. Well, it mattered no to the cared. people they saved. I'm sure it did for them. Absolutely. But what came full circle was about two years later, the Pope invited them to Europe to the organization that is the highest organization in the world for bravery and honorary, honor in mountains, especially in mountain rescue. And they've got the highest awards. Now the Pope actually gave them the awards for bravery in the mountains. And there was a nice story to that. It kind of came full circle. So again, it's, it's about doing good in the universe versus, you know, doing what's right for the self. And it was just great to see these guys truly recognized for what the heroics of what they did up there that no one really knew about. Absolutely. So, that's, that's really incredible. And that's great that it finally did. Uh, they finally were recognized for that. Yeah, That's amazing. Well, I know you've done so many incredible things uh, with mountaineering, uh, but you've done just as many with scuba diving as well. We'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got started with scuba diving and how that's changed your life as well. Well, I think in a previous life, I was a penguin or something, uh, or, uh, you know, the water has always had a very intrinsic spiritual hold on me. And uh, growing up in Australia, we spent a lot of time out in the Great Barrier Reef, and back then the laws were a little easier to scuba dive pre, you know, at an eight-year-old age. And um, so I got my first taste of being underwater, you know, in 1970, 72, and just instantly fell in love with it. And so um, in 1978, got scuba certified. Uh, just loved being free underwater. 
at the same time, I was a competitive swimmer through high school and college and just always in the water, anything to do with the water. And my great dream was to be able to live underwater. Why not? You can spend a year in space, but you can't spend a night underwater. So I always had that nagging dream as much as I enjoyed, you know, one scuba tank or two scuba tanks, be able to stay under for a half hour or an hour. Like I want to live underwater. Why not? There's minerals, there's mining, there's aquaculture. There's a whole lot of humanity. Some say we came from the oceans and we have a destiny with the oceans. It's uh, it's in our soul. It's in our DNA. And I wanted to be on the forefront of ocean long-term habitat ex- uh, development and, uh, so I progressed with that along the way while I was trying to do my climbing and everything else. And in uh, 2005, I was asked to join a program called Poseidon Undersea Resorts uh, that was the forefront in developing underwater habitats. And so I had brought to the table capital formation, venture capital, entrepreneurship, team building, scuba diving, uh, NASA kind of thinking of how you, from a mechanical engineering point of view, you can build anything question is, can you get people to pay a lot of money to stay underwater? So we broke through a lot of the barriers with why have humans not yet been able to open up the oceans for long-term habitats. And uh, it was a fascinating experience with some of the uh, French team that we had. They're some of the best underwater folks in the world. We had a professor named Dr. Uh, Jean Joubert out of the Monaco Institute of Oceanography. He was Jacques Cousteau's lifelong business partner. He runs the Cousteau Society. He is the foremost authority on the planet of growing coral polyps in a laboratory and transplanting them to repopulate and rebuild uh, coral reefs. And so we flew him out to the island and said, you know, we'll give you $5 million to build the world's best uh, coral repopulation research center because Fiji has seven 747 flights a day going all over the world. You can quickly move polyps of coral and repopulate damaged reefs around the world. And it was just an incredible experience and um, to be associated with ocean engineers and some of the top people in the world that had this vision and, and desire to uh, solve some of mankind's problems by pushing the edge of the envelope of how do we stay underwater? Why do we stay underwater? What do we do? it? How do you finance it? That was always the big deal killer, I think, is you can raise all the money you want if you got a good business model to show the investors you can pay them back. So we'd go in with our business model, the investors, and they're like, great, where's the hotel? We like your cash flow model. Well, it's underwater. So what? <laughs> cash flow <laughs> model works. So we brought a real entrepreneurial financial vision to the team of how to fund an organization where you can pay back the, the investors because that's really the final piece of puzzle why no one's really been able to open up the oceans yet. It's an economic issue. Wow. Everything else is solvable. How do you make money on to pay back the investors? I guess that's always the big question. <laughs> yeah. But I know a lot of people always say that the moon is more explored than some of the deepest parts of the ocean. Why do you think that the ocean is still so um, you know, so unknown to us? Huh. That's the $64 million question. There are a lot of reasons. Um, I think some of it has to do with NASA was government-sponsored, so they had a lot of money. Um, it was better TV than underwater where there's not much. Um, yeah, some people like uh, Dr. Ballard and, and a lot of the great ocean explorers. And uh, it's hard to answer that question. Um, I think timing in the universe, what is there to gain from going to the moon? That also was a political Cold War pressure issue. Um, there has been incredible innovation with submarine technology in the last 20 years, especially the last 10 years, to open up the Challenger Deep. Um, so there is great movement in that realm. Um, 
like I said earlier, there's mining, there's fishing, there's aquaculture, there's all kind of new technologies coming out that are making this inevitableness closer to a reality of human long-term underwater habitats. And it's a risky environment. It's probably almost as risky as a moonshot when you take all the logistics into factor of the pressure of water, um, you know, the, the elect- electrical issues, equipment issues. Now, it's not nothing to sneeze at. But again, you can have a resort at 30 or 40 feet and be perfectly safe, and you can also have much deeper ones for long-term mining and uh, minerals and things like that. There's a lot of economic incentives to being able to stay underwater for a long time. Robotics is really opening a lot. There's no real need to send humans deep, and almost you can do everything by robotics these days too. So. Mm-hmm. But it's getting there. There's a lot of positive movement in that, which is exciting. So whatever happened with the efforts to create the the first underwater resort, and do you think – uh, if we're able to actually make one one day, that will um, help uh, to kind of open up the sport and inspire people who may uh, would maybe would like to kind of see what that experience is like without actually doing the scuba diving part first. Yeah, that was I think one of the big innovations for us was we wanted to get the masses underwater, not just scuba divers. We exactly. wanted to open up the oceans to the rich and famous that then would see a lot of the environmental issues, see the coral devastation firsthand see the the fish depopulations firsthand. If you can get people underwater and bring a cause to life, then it makes funding and research and solutions a little better. So uh, we we know the scuba divers were always very frustrated having to come up after a a tank or two. They could only spend an hour or two underwater. And so that was the easy, low-hanging fruit type customer. But we wanted to be able to get anybody in there, you know, disabled or elderly or children keep them dry you walk down a tube like you're at disneyland and suddenly you're living underwater in a plexiglass bubble at 30 feet looking out in crystal clear water with 400 foot visibility and in a lagoon and fiji and the vision was spectacular of what can be done and so on one hand there was it was not a technology issue for us our parent company was u.s submarines so we were very strong with submarine technology uh, of ballast and, and weight and engineering issues underwater or water pressure so we were just building a bigger submarine anchored to the ocean floor. It'll happen. It's uh, we're still alive as a company. We're there's a lot of planets that need to come into alignment to get an underwater facility to work. You can do small ones for R and D and science. There's actually been about seventy underwater facilities that have been built throughout time since Jacques Cousteau's very first one, but they were all science or research or military. There is the Jules Verne in Florida that's open to the consumer. Uh, but it sleeps six people and it's a box and you got to scuba dive down to it and it's kind of a muddy lagoon, but it works and it's sold mm-hmm. out for years in advance. So there is great hope and, and potential for humans to have long-term habitats and sustainable lives underwater. I mean, why not? Absolutely. <laughs> if we're going to have habit- habitats on the moon, then we can have habitats underwater, right? Yep. Uh, humans have, since the beginning of time, been wanderers and explorers. We climb mountains because they're there to paraphrase uh, George Mallory. Um, we go to the oceans to learn. We go to the moon. It's We don't sit still well as a species. We are explorers by nature. And I think a lot of the stress in society comes from people that aren't able to uh, relieve that stress and get out there stuck in traffic or stuck in cubicles or high rises. And um, there is such a world of, of mental, social, physical, psychological health by being outdoors and being in tune with mother nature, whether you've had a death in the family or a divorce, or, you know, you come from the troubled side of Chicago or you're disabled, you know, the so many solutions to human happiness, I think is, is enjoy is found in, in the wilderness, whether it's sitting by a river for a day or walking in your little community park or 
going to Mount Everest or going to the South Pole or going underwater, it's all the same. And uh, here at the OR show, it's just everywhere. People are doing stuff that is truly amazing. And you just, I've never seen so many smiles in my life as walking around this floor because people are just it's a happy group of people. They're loving Everyone's life and they're living they life. Yeah, so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think it's been incredible how you have built a lifestyle that really helps you uh, live that sense of passion and adventure uh, firsthand through all the different entrepreneurial pursuits you've done. Um, so for any, everyone out there who uh, wants to uh, kind of get that type of lifestyle started, what advice would you give to them? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. The, <laughs> um, I don't know. Find the things that really inspire you in life and find a way to make a living doing that. Um it's it's expensive to do adventures, not just the cost you got to pay out for them, but a lot of times the lost jobs or the lost relationships because people tend to think you're nuts. I got the me or the mountain speech quite a few times over the course of my life, and you know, I kept the mountain first and foremost. Um, but if you don't really truly enjoy what you do, no matter how big the paycheck, you're going to be miserable. Uh, unfortunately, the inverse is usually the more fun things are, the, the less financial stability there is. So it's a, a trade-off in life. You know, I think the great delusion or illusion is that the bigger paycheck you get, the happier you're going to get, but it just means you got to work more and someone else owns your life. So uh, for me, it, uh, I, my goals were to stay debt-free and, and, and adventure as much as I can because life is short. Today might be our last day. And to live large and see as much as we can and try to help others to see the beauty of Mother Nature in the wilderness. And, you know, things change very quickly. And, you know, my goal as a child growing up was to do as many different things as I could while I was alive. So I've been very fortunate. And I had parents that kind of blessed me with their DNA. But my father also specifically trained me to be an entrepreneur and an adventurer. And so uh, it's been been a lot of fun. It, sometimes I look back and you know I try to tell these stories. Most people, a lot of people don't believe them. Like it's real. I got all the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> got to have those pictures to prove it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to to go back to um, to when you were first getting started, how do you think your father's influence has affected um, kind of what you do and why you do it today? I very clearly remember the day that he taught me the word entrepreneurship and what it meant. He said, son, these are people that are free. They do what they want, where they want, with who they want on their own terms, and they make the world go round. And they are idea people. They're inventors. They're, uh, they live where they want, um, and they have freedom versus what my father did for 30 years was in a corporate environment of do his job and fit into a small cog in a big machine. So he set me down that path, and I think also just by random luck of, uh, the, the the DNA of my mother and father, I was a, kind of a hyper ADD child as it was. And I've got some big issues with how society labels ADD and AHAD. I think the problem is you've got good people stuck, good people stuck into environments that are not good for them and they get irritated and frustrated. The trick is to take people and kids with high energy and turn them loose and get them doing things. You take an ADD kid and find something they really enjoy and they become masters of it. It's that we get frustrated when we're not having fun, when we're not out running around, we're not flying through life with our hair on fire. And too many kids these days are stuck into a desk and say, sit still and be quiet and listen and regurgitate. And if you can't, we're going to, you know, aid riddling you down. And it's just sad because so many of those kids' lives could be saved by getting them out in the wilderness and find some passion 
then they figure out, hey, I love kayaking or I love mountaineering or I love working with disabled kids. How do I now start a company to go do that? So uh, I was fortunate in college that I started uh, figuring out the game of how to ask people for money for an idea, for an invention, or that they were most probably going to lose. And uh, the art of writing business plans, the art of building teams to bring an idea to life. One person with an idea can truly change the world and has been done time and time again. Absolutely. What were some of those early um, kind of first entrepreneurial ventures that you had? (laughs) When I was in high school, I started a painting company that let me climb. So I got the contracts to paint high rise buildings because I loved hanging off. Because it would let you climb, right? (laughs) Yeah, I love rappelling (laughs) down the side of a 20 story building. I'm 17 years old. Um, In college, my first real project was uh, one of my father's. It was called Natural Birthing Centers of America. And they were franchising natural birthing centers because the cost and insurance and all this of having a baby in a hospital was very, very complex. I didn't know jack about the baby business, but it gave me a chance to go out and, and learn about it, how to write a business plan and work with great doctors that understood that business and actually go out and start raising capital. And my junior year in college, I raised $30,000 from my swim coach boss and my top professor. And I got a, a fee, a finder's fee on that. So I got a $3,000 check. I'm like, I kind of like this game. Go out, raise <laughs> money, get paid, and be a part of something exciting, like building something from nothing. Um, in, uh, let's see, in 1994, 95, I did a project with my prep school classmate over in Eastern Europe. He had, uh, with an investment group, bought controlling interest of $450 million worth of companies behind the old Iron Curtain. They cornered the market on car, truck, and bus spare parts distribution because there was no industry to build new vehicles. Everything had to be repaired. They cornered the market on 280 million people. Everything had to be repaired. He hired me to find a buyer for that whole thing. And my dad's job his whole life was automotive, especially behind the Iron Curtain. I could understand that concept. We found a buyer. Um, unfortunately, Hungary swung back left and voided the deal and threw us out of the country. And <laughs> there went a $3 million finder's fee. That one hurt for a while. But, uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy that's so far out of the box, you can't see the box, but I could understand how to take a communist monopoly car, truck, and bus distribution system and privatize it and then find a buyer for it. And it was a phenomenal experience. Um, my buddy and I, then the next year, my dad felt so bad for us that he gave me $2,000 to start my life over again. He goes, no more startups, get a place to live, get a job. Well, I did another hey, he startup. He told you no more startups. He was the one that inspired you to do in the first place. I know, place, but right? it, it was wreaking havoc on my, my finances. <laughs> and uh, So we we took $2,000 and started a software company and raised $12 million and sold off the company. And we survived the dot-com days, the Y2K days. So did you go back to him and tell him, you know, I'm glad I didn't take your advice and no more startups? Yeah, well, my dad was actually on the board and a co-founder because he had all the gray hair connections for the board guys that we needed. Like uh, we brought in the CTO of Texaco. Uh, chief, uh, the VP of sales worldwide for Shell. He, those were the guys that he knew that provided wisdom and counsel at a board level for two snot-nosed punk uh, software engineers. We had never built a company. We had never raised capital. And we sure as heck never did software. But we did. We solved one of the biggest problems in the world of heavy manufacturing because we were basically too dumb to know better. We're like, well, why not? Let's look at the problem this way. Everyone else is looking at it that way. And it was a fascinating experience, and that's when I finally got picked to go on Mount Everest. I'm like, dang it, the two great dreams of my life happening at the same time, and I had to choose. That's tough. But uh, the software company was called Pelion Systems, and we named it after the first American to summit Mount Everest. My lifelong mentor and hero, Jim Whitaker, founder of REI, uh, in his book, his memoirs called The Life on the Edge, 
he's asked, what was the greatest experience of your life? He said he took uh, a group of disabled, blind, and handicapped climbers to the summit of Mount Rainier. He said, I learned more about life and dreams and overcoming obstacles and teamwork on that four-day expedition than anything else I did in my life. And then in parentheses, it said this was called, we called it the Pelion Project, and Mount Pelion was the highest mountain in Greek mythology in the center of wisdom and learning. The next day, we changed the name of my software company to Pelion Systems, a tribute okay. to Jim Whitaker. That's and great. The picture of Jim Whitaker on the summit of Mount Everest from 1963 sat on the foot of every bed I ever lived in, high school and college. The picture of him on Mount Everest sat at the foot of my bed. And I looked at that for 20 damn years. I'm like, you know, someday, someday, someday. So I got to meet him in 2000 and get him to sign his book. I said, sir, because of you, I'm going back into, I'm going to Everest in 2001 to look for Mallory, uh, uh, George, uh, Sandy Irvine's body. I said, thank you very much for your inspiration. Wow. <laughs> what do you say to that? Uh, he's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, said, that's oh. awesome. So it's, it's so clear throughout everything that you're, that you're saying um, that everything you've done has, has really been um, so true to your why, which we were talking about before. And there's a book that I always like to recommend that I, I really enjoyed called Start With Why. And it definitely highlights the same focus that you've talked about with always being true to the why and why you're doing something and getting that bigger sense uh, for kind of the meaning of something um, on top of the actual activity you're doing. So if you could give us a little bit of advice today on how you've used that philosophy throughout your life, um, what would that be? Huh. Um, I've been accused quite a few times of being a very self-centered person, and I guess that's true because I've always done what I wanted to do. And it was on my terms, and I float to a very different drummer in this this universe, and I don't expect most people to understand it. Like, I don't understand what it would be like to be married with a mortgage and a, and a job and kids to me that's alien i love the freedom it's just who and what i am to be able to live where i want travel pack up and move um you know i i think the way people should look at it is let's assume that today really or tomorrow is our last day what mark are we going to leave in the universe what is our legacy going to be how many people can we help along the way um you know how how, how can you change someone's lives a disabled child or a underserved school or uh, whatever it may be, you know, there is such joy and in, in, in freedom in the wilderness, whether it's sitting by a river or parachuting or ballooning, whatever it is, but have fun. You know, if it's not fun, don't do it. And usually jobs are not fun. <laughs> so I just encourage people to, to think like an otter and just want to play all the time and just, you know, if this is not fun, go find something that's fun because life's just too short to not do what you really enjoy. And there's such a world out there to explore. So many great programs like Outward Bound and uh, the National Park System that that really are, are there. And they're golden gems of opportunities to learn about life and what's really important of interacting with others and helping others and, and giving back to Mother Nature. There's a lot of problems on this planet that humans have, have devastated or pollution or overdevelopment or whatever it may be that you know there are economic value there's money to be made in solving environmental problems it's it is morally right and imperative and a good thing to profit off of solving environmental problems because you can't solve a problem if you're not in business so if you've got to have a business approach how are we going to make money cleaning up the oceans how are we going to make money fixing the reefs how are we going to you know because if like i said if, if you can't be in business you're not going to solve anything 
Mm-hmm. So money is not the root of all evil. <laughs> money is the source of all solutions. Exactly. So it's how you perceive money. It's how you make it. And uh, it's uh, it's why you do what you do. And going back to, I think, one of my, my our statements earlier is what's in your why? Why do you live your life? Why do you do what you do? Why do you believe this? Why do you get out in the wilderness? Why do you not get out in the wilderness? People tend to be afraid of what they don't know. And uh, Marshall, I know that's what you're trying to do is break down the barriers to help a lot more people get out and find their 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 intrinsic spirit balance again in the wilderness and take that deep sigh and that that breath and, and let go of this rat race uh, there's an old saying that i really love and says the, the winners of the rat race are still rats the losers of the rat race are dumbass rats so why play the game <laughs> that's a great <laughs> <You know>? saying <laughs> quote of the interview <laughs> well that's that's awesome thanks so much for sharing that i i think um uh you know there was a time when i thought you can either do what you love or you can do what makes money or you can do what makes a positive impact. And I think you've definitely shown us today that you can absolutely do all three. Um, so thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's been such a pleasure hearing about all the awesome things you've done, and all the incredible stories you've shared. Um, and uh, it's been absolutely amazing to have you on the show with us today. Well, I appreciate your time, Marshall. I look forward to working with uh, Vestigo down the road and helping you guys grow your business. And we're trying to do the same things get a lot more people outdoors and enjoy life. Well, I think you've already inspired a lot of people to do that exact same thing. So yeah. well, thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much, Chris. This podcast is brought to you by Vestigo, a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences. People have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides. Recently, we talked to Tyler a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo, and then actually I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, Maybe someday in the future. Uh, Of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I can get around to that. Vestigo allowed it to be like, let's do it. You want to do it? Here's when, here's where, you know, let's go. What would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip? Go. Just go now. It's, uh, it's, you, you just can't beat it. You can't do it yourself. It's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves, but maybe don't. I mean, and, and, and they can, but it's just, there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity, like having the group of people makes it just makes it. And, uh, so, so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time that maybe I know them, maybe I don't, we can kind of share our, you know, nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um, and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um, you know, it's, it just all around, I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to repel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co, V-E-S-T-I-G-O dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code podcast and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.